Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight in the Speakeasy is a lawyer. And he doesn't just play one behind the mic, he actually is one. That's right, he's a voice actor and a lawyer, and the author of Voice Over Legal, a legal guide for voice actors and broadcasters. Rob Siglin-Paglia, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sure, yeah, I'm really glad you could make it. Stop by for a drink. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, my old standby sparkling water. Sparkling water, you know, that seems to be a popular choice here in the speakeasy. I'm not sure why, but uh, a lot of people like that. Maybe it's just because the speakeasy is really dedicated to all us voice actors. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Sounds good. Warm tea often seems to be a popular one as well. Well, I am joining, I am joining you tonight with, uh, I don't know, for some reason talking to a lawyer in the speakeasy, I just thought scotch really hit me. So I'm, I'm drinking a 14 year old, uh, Oban single malt. Nice. With a single skull shaped ice cube just for fun. (laughs) Sounds good to me. All right. Cheers, Rob. Cheers. So, uh, where are you from? I am from Stamford, Connecticut. Well, I know that you are currently back east. Is that close to where you're from? Yes, I live in Norwalk now, so not too two towns away. <laughs> not two too towns far away. away. Wow. So, did you leave and come back, or have you been there the whole time? Nope, I've been here the whole time. Oh, no kidding! You must have liked it growing up. Yeah, I love I love this part of uh, Connecticut. It's uh, very close to New York City, but. Uh, it's um, suburban, rural, uh, close to everything. Nice. We got the four seasons. So I, <laughs> I love this part of, of the country. Close to New York City, but not New York City. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 40 so, miles away. So uh, where did you do your undergrad? I went to uh, University of Connecticut, UConn. Staying close to home again. Yep. All right. How about law school? <laughs> and then uh, I went to, to Pace University. In New York, Pace. close to home again. <laughs> not not familiar with Pace, but yeah, close to home seems to be a theme there. Yes, absolutely. And um, and once you got out of law school, where did you start? Did you start practicing right away or uh, do something else yes. in the meantime? Nope, I started practicing right away. Um, I started practicing in Stanford. Uh, worked for a firm doing a lot of real estate closing. So that's basically how I started in the law. And then I moved on to start my own practice. So when you were doing the, when you were doing the real estate, was that kind of your thinking while you were in law school? Is that what you were going to focus on? Or were you just like, I'm going to go to law school, get my, uh, get my degree and then I'll do whatever I need to. Uh, well in law school, I, um, I had a lot of different, different interests. I, uh, studied environmental law. I studied, um, international law. Um, I was really good and I, I was top in my class for contract law and tort law, um, tort laws, negligence and, um, assault and battery, that, that kind of, of law. So those, those are the interests that I had. So, you know, I, I, uh, was kind of keeping the doors open, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, real estate and environmental, I mean, environmental, you're protecting, obviously protecting the environment. Um, but real estate law, um, is one of the related areas for environmental. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do, but it was something that I wanted exposure to because learning how to do a closing is a real estate closing is a, is a good skill to have. Sure. So that's where I learned. I learned it for, uh, when I started working, not in law school, because they don't they don't teach you how to how to do real estate closings in, in law school. They uh, just teach you the, the basics of property law, going back to the English times. So then, when so, you when you got into the real estate stuff, it was all on the job experience, and that was it. Right. All right. Yep. It was um, it was a good way to start, actually. And I was exposed to other things too. There was a general practice firm. I was mainly doing real estate, but they had they they did everything. They did uh, personal injury, workers' compensation, uh, estates. So I was exposed to uh, a lot of different areas of the law. Well, that's good. I'm sure that that helped when you then went into practice for yourself. Yep, absolutely. And I uh, they did family law too. And I learned I did want to do family family law. Family law, then. like so, trusts and estates and stuff like that. No divorce. Oh, uh, that kind of family. child okay. custody. Yeah, Got matrimonial it. law. So yeah, I learned that that was a practice area I didn't want to do. Um, so I learned. I learned. I had a good exposure to different areas of things that I liked and didn't like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's good. So when you when you opened your own practice, what did you start with? What were you really focusing on? Um, I was doing real estate closings. I was doing uh, personal injury. Um, that's when I started doing entertainment law. But, oh, I, I did that in law school too. I, I took some entertainment law courses. So I start I started practicing entertainment law um, on my own when I went out on my own. What did you think so, of the uh, the entertainment law classes that you took in law school? Was that something where kind of in the back of your mind you were going – Oh, huh, this is pretty interesting. Well, I'll focus on this other stuff now, but I'm going to keep keep my eye on that. No, I, I definitely was interested in it. Um, entertainment law is a real niche pre- area of practice. So and it, it, it combines a lot of other areas of practice, um, you know, contracts, negotiations, copyright. You know, so those are the kind of classes that, I, that they gave. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and they also gave classes on being an agent, sports agent, um, an entertainment agent. Um, I know I, I knew at the time that I didn't want to do that, um, but I did want to focus on some of the law aspects. But it's you know it's it, it's it's difficult because either you're going to go work for a firm that does com- just entertainment law, or you're going to work for for one of the you know the big companies like Sony Entertainment or something like that. Mm, um, right, in house. It's harder to you know to start your own practice in entertainment law. And one of the things that we learned it, right from law school was that. Most lawyers that do entertainment law also do other areas of practice because there's just, you know it's it's not a steady most of the time it's not a steady um, gig it's you don't get a lot of business right. in entertainment until until you build the practice. Sure, so, yeah, and you're working for one of those firms that specializes in that alone. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, so you were, you started your own practice, you were doing various different things, started doing a little entertainment law. And then at some point you got into voiceover work. How'd that happen? <laughs> well, I was, uh, rep- I started out representing bands and music musicians. That was my first exposure when I started, um, entertainment, uh-huh. my entertainment practice. Um, that was another course I had taken in, uh, in law school was, uh, how to represent musicians. So and that was when there was actually a record, there was uh, an actual record industry back yeah, then. Back in the day, yeah. So, like, it's completely different now, but, you know, you, back then, you actually, 
would send demos in and, you know, try to negotiate record deals and, you know, it's completely different. Oh, now, how recording but, has changed. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and that was when I first got, you know, I first um, started getting interested in other areas like voiceover and acting. Um, but I was always on the business side, never mm-hmm. on the on the other side of <laughs> mm-hmm. the other side of the camera or other side of the microphone. Um, so I, I just wanted to learn more about it. And I um, took an adult education class on voiceover. And that's how I got started in earnest in, in the industry. So, so that was just something that you did kind of on the side as a hobby kind of thing, just to learn more about it, as opposed to this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. Yeah, it was just, you know, what, what is, you know, what, what's voiceover about? Uh, you know, what's the industry like? Um, you know, I, I know the music industry. I wonder what voiceover is like. So I took the class um, and I, I really liked it. And I, so I pursued it uh, on the other side of the mic <laughs> instead of just on the legal side. That's great. So, but, uh, but you were still working full time as a practicing attorney. Yes, I was still full time as an attorney at that at that time, um, and at that time I was also, I mean, I was working a lot as an attorney, and mm-hmm. I, I was looking for something else, um, so I, I didn't have to work as much as an attorney. Um, yeah, I was looking to you know, not necessarily quit the law, but I was looking for a way to balance it out. Not spend and eighty hours a week on it. Exactly. Yeah. And that was what I was doing. I was really spending 80 hours a week Damn. on, on law. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've heard that before that, um, when you're, when you get into legal, when you're not too far in, you know, and <laughs> I think sometimes even when you are like 20 or 30 years in, it can really kind of take over your life. Absolutely. Easily. It could easily consume you and it could easily upset be, you could be obsessed over it. Um, and so, that, you know, one of the things that attorneys try to do now, or then they're instructed to do, <laughs> but is to, to do things for themselves, you know, find something to balance out your life mm-hmm. recreationally or whatever. Um, I was looking for, to try to balance uh, career-wise, you know, how else I could um, go into business, um, do something I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. plus be able to practice law at the same time. So, um, you know, voiceovers was my, my, that was my idea of how, how to do that. Um, I branched out in many different ways now since that, that time. Um, but, uh, voiceovers where it all started. Um, so how was that progression? You took the class at the, at the local place and then you take some workshops, you get an agent. What happened? Yep. Yep. I took some, uh, I took some workshops. Um, I trained, you know, I kind of dove into it because, um, you know, being having gone to law school, you know, I, I have no problem with uh, studying intensely mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's that's exactly what you do yeah. in, uh, in law school. It's a very intense um, study. Um, so I decided um, that I wanted to really learn it. And then I cut my demo. And um, when I cut my demo, um, I, I that's why I set up my studio and I did the whole, I really jumped into it and I, I wanted to give myself a chance to be a success. Sure. Start out right. And then actually it was when I, um, it was right around the time when, um, some of the pay to plays were starting, starting out in their infancy. 
Um, and so that was, I remember those I days. Actually, <laughs> Dude, should I say which one it was, but I went on one of the ones, the first ones, and I actually got my first gig through there. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a national uh, documentary on the oh. American Experience TV wow. series. Through, through one of the pay to plays. Through one of the pay to plays. Wow. Yep. Um, and that was my start in the voiceover world. I went to Broadway Sound, which is where they do, that's Lauren Michaels Studio, where they do Saturday Night Live. Oh, wow. That's our, that was my first gig. Right, Broadway sound. That's an recording. awesome first gig. <laughs> it was, it was, it was awesome. Yeah, that it was good that that happened because that really propelled me. Yeah, I was going to say. So then, at that point, even though you'd kind of been bit by the bug, now you were seriously bit by the bug. Seriously. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's great. So, yeah, so I moved on to on camera stuff after, shortly after that because I uh, started meeting people and networking, and they were all like, "Oh, you should just get your headshot done and you know see where it leads." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. I did. And, um, so what kind of on camera stuff were you doing? Was it commercials or was it, uh, like extra work or actually featured or what were you doing? Well, when I first started, I was doing extra work for Mm -hmm. the big, for some of the big films. My first, like right after I got my headshot done, literally about a week later, I got a call uh, to do two days worth of background work on music and lyrics. Hmm. So with Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore, Mm-hmm. And um, so I actually, they, I ended up having like a, almost a featured role. They put me like right in the middle of the action. Nice. And so I, I, I remember like a few months after I had done that shoot, it was New Year's Eve, and they had pl- they had um, debuted the uh, premiered the trailer for that on, during the Dick Clark show, and I'm in the I'm in the kitchen and and I'm. All of a sudden, I hear my family screaming. Ah! I come running in. <laughs> Apparently, I was on TV. I was in the trailer. How funny! So, That's great. So that was my first on-camera job. So then I, again, totally into it. I started taking classes, and I started doing commercials and industrials and everything. So it's uh, it's kind of crazy how things work out. Sure. Yeah. It sounds like a couple of great first jobs in a couple of different areas. So that was quite a while ago. If this was at the, um, the beginning days of the pay to plays, I remember those days well. And I think that when I signed up with one of them, I was like the, I don't know, number 1400 or something like that. And, uh, or at least that was my ID. I don't know how many people were actually serious about it or how many of those were just the free accounts. And I think that now one of them is boasting something like, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people. So this was, this was way back when. So that's quite a while. So you've been doing both legal work and voiceover and on-camera and acting work since then. Yes. So how, yep. how do you split it up these days? What's the, what kind of a percentage or does it really vary from week to week and month to month? It varies, but it's definitely 50-50, you know, yeah. it, it weighs out, uh, to be not all of the like a lot of times like this week I've, I've been doing pretty much all legal work but next week it'll or the week before actually i was doing a, a lot of uh voiceover and acting on camera work yeah. so and i and i also now produce um i started doing um producing work um over the past couple of years what so, kind what kind of production are you talking about film and tv um some executive producer, I, I would start, you know, I, uh, a few years back I was, um, representing filmmakers. So I would, uh, be the production attorney and that's how I started learning the business. 
on the business. Well, I already kind of knew the business from, you know, the on-camera side, but that's how I got more involved in the actual industry. And um, so then I started doing production because it's not that much different. Right. You know, the legal side, doing the business side, you know, different, different functions. But yeah, they, I'm, know, I'm, I'm sure having that legal background is a, is a huge plus, huge plus yes. when it comes to uh, being on the production side. Absolutely. It always goes, it really is anchored in the legal because, you know, it's all agreements, it's finding financing and, you know, signing distribution agreements and signing your, getting your uh, agreements done with your talent and negotiating those things. And so it does really, having the, the law, uh, the legal degree really, really helps um, in the production side. Yeah, you know, no I, doubt. There's a lot of lawyers in Hollywood. So. <laughs> and, and you're out there in Connecticut instead. Yes, I do go out to LA now every, um, a lot yeah. um, now because I do have a lot of contacts now that I've um, created a made out there in LA. So I just opened my, uh, I started my uh, official production company last year called Bel Air Productions. Oh, fairly recent. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was working in the industry before that, but I, I, have, I uh, formalized it last year because I was doing a lot more work and I wanted to be able to have an official company. Sure. Yeah. I hear that. I hear that's a good idea. We'll, we'll get into that in a little while. (laughs) (laughs) And so I just opened up my LA branch in Burbank. Um, and so I in January last, last month I was out there, um, setting it all as getting all set up. So. Wow. You must've been killing two birds with one stone then. Cause I know that you were at uh, Johnny Heller's workshop out there too. Yes, that was exactly that. That's, that was the trip. There you go. That's great. Yes. Well, so, so wow, that's, that's, Really, uh, I'm a little surprised that it's kind of a 50-50 thing. I think that's really cool. You started out with trying to get some kind of a balance, and it sounds like you've worked out a pretty good balance there. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's not, it's not, I mean, 50-50s, it's not always 50-50. Sure, I mean, but but overall, it sounds like there's a there's a good balance there. Um, right, you've, right. So you've done a lot of different kinds of VO work, and I know that you have narrated at least a few audiobooks. Yes. How many? Yep. Uh, six or seven. I've done. So I was a little surprised when I looked up uh, voiceover legal that it doesn't have an audiobook version because I would think yes. that you would you would know somebody who could do that. <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> we we did that on purpose because if you read the book it has a lot of cutouts, oh. a lot of cutaways, and yeah. a lot of you know asides and I thought it would just get too confusing if, sure. if we did it in audiobook yeah. format. So Makes so sense. it's in the it's an electronic and it's in print. And a lot of people Want, prefer the print because they, you know, they uh, uh, fold over the pages and they they put stickies in it and they right. refer back to it. So, like the audiobook, I didn't think would. It's not a one one kind of listen thing. It's yeah. you really have to go back when you need it. It's more of a reference book. So, no, I understand. That that's why we didn't do the audiobook. I so, started recording it and I was just like, this is not going to work. <laughs> so, so you've uh, you've narrated six or seven audiobooks. Uh, how do you like that kind of VO work? Um, I really respect narrators. Um, the work itself is fun, but it's, it, for me, it's just, it, I don't have the patience <laughs> to, to do it yeah. or the time anymore. Like the time, the time factor is the biggest factor and not necessarily the, the, um, narration part, but then the editing part. Um, you know, it, it's very time consuming as, as everyone uh, who's listening uh, on your podcast knows. Oh, yeah. So that's why, that's why I have very high respect for, for narrators. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, the, the, you're, you're, um, the amount you get compensated unless you're doing a lot of them or doing 
really big best-selling fiction, right. you know, you're not really making a lot of money at it either. So it's really a, a, a love. Um, narrators do it for the love. Um, and unless they're going to, you know, if you're going to build your, your, um, a whole roster of books, then, then you can start making the money. But for me, I just, I really, it just comes down to time. I have to, <laughs> I have to manage my time. Yeah, no, all the things it, I do. It, it certainly makes sense. It's, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult making a living at audiobooks doing it, um, part-time. Um, and it's diff- I would, I would argue that it's difficult making a living at audiobooks doing it full-time unless, uh, until you get pretty well established. Of course, right. there are, uh, exceptions to every rule, but I know that, uh, I'm sure that everyone listening says, oh yeah, I, I went through that or I went through this and, uh, it, it can be difficult getting going. Um, right. so, exactly. so if you're going to keep doing other things, uh, you really have to choose, choose those titles carefully. Um, right. So what kind of, not just audiobooks, but what are some common legal situations that you run into in the VO world? Um, I'm, I'm guessing that since you've, since you had an interest in tort law and contracts and things like that, that's probably a lot of what you see, but that's just a guess on my part. Um, what, what do you see when it comes to voiceover? Uh, I mean, it really runs the gamut, um, from contracts, uh, contra issues with agents, those kind of things come up all the time. Contracts with clients, uh, those things come up all the time. Um, what, so what kind of issues do you see between voice talent and agents? Um, I see agents, uh, many times, um, not many times, but sometimes they, uh, they, the the uh, talent thinks they're being cheated by their agent, not getting paid the, the correct percentage. Um, that happens quite often, more than it should. I mean, it's not quite often, but more than it should, put, mm-hmm. put it that way. Um, so you find that in those situations where voice talent thinks that they're not getting the right percentage, that's often true? Uh, oh, most of the time it's true. Yeah. So most of the time, most of the, I mean, the, the talent usually knows what they're supposed to get, get paid, right? They can find out pretty easily. Right. Um, right. So most of the time they, I don't get the phone call unless it's, you know, pretty well established that, that, that occurred. Definitely a problem. So, yeah. All right. um, and then, you know, I see, I see um, issues right at the, the onset of some um, agency, agent talent relationships, because like some of the contracts I read are crazy. They're, they're, some of the things that they ask for in those contracts, some of those contracts are, they're just, I, I don't know where they're, you know, they're, they're very one-sided what, and a what, lot of times. What's an example of something like that? Um, like a very easy one. Um, you know, an agent will want to lock up a talent for a couple of years and not, I never, a lot of times I never see an out clause for the, for the talent. So I always, when I see an agency contract, I always want to give the talent an out. So after a certain period of time, and I know that an agent needs time in order to, to, you know, to uh, be able to submit the talent and and build a relationship with casting directors and things like that. But um, I mean, trying to lock a talent up for a long period of time and not letting them out, uh, that that's, and it has to be a two way street. So that's one of the things I always try to get, negotiated in, in those agreements. Got it. So, so you're talking about exclusivity where the agent says you can't work through any other agents, but us for X number of years. Right. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's the, I mean, uh, I would like to see some kind of progress clause in there after six months, you know, if they don't get a certain amount of bookings that they, that they can, 
they have the option of terminating the contract or continuing on or, you know, six months to a year, I guess. I mean, that that's a year is kind of stretching it for me. But, uh, you know, after that period of time, there should be a way for the talent to be able to, if they're not being being sent on auditions, to be able to get out of the deal. Right. How so, does that how does that usually work out? I mean, if if a, if a talent comes to you and says, "Oh, they want to, they want to lock this up for two years," and I don't know how I feel about that, and you recommend, "No, you need to negotiate this." Do are most agents open to that and say, "Oh, well, okay, yeah, we put that in the contract, but okay, if you don't want it, we can change it." I mean, it, it kind of runs the gamut. That that's one of my litmus tests to find out if the agent uh, is above board or not. Sure. Yeah. You know, if they if they dig their heels in on the contract, I. I that's that's a red flag that I'll tell I'll tell the client right. right? You know, they're not willing to negotiate this stuff. And this is not stuff that I see in normal contracts. So you got you should think, you know, you should think before you sign sign this deal. Yeah. Where other ones, most a lot of times, um, talent agents, their the attorneys write those contracts. So you know they don't even really know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> so, some of the stuff, you know, they they right. obviously know the the main points and you know, that the agents have been around for a little while. They of course know their contracts, but sometimes, you know, there's so many agents popping up now, which is the other issue. Like it's not just established agents or agents that have been around that, you know, anyone can really call themselves a manager these days. Mm-hmm. So that, that plays into it as well. Um, but you know, most of the time they're okay with, with a client, um, negotiating. And in fact, it protects them if they have a lawyer that, uh, or even the client negotiated their terms with the with the agent, you know. Then later on, the agent, can, you know, the, the talent can't go back and say this was a one sided, you know, unfair deal, and right. you know, try to get out of it later. So it, it kind of really protects the agent too if the if the uh, the talent um, negotiates those terms. So most of the time they're okay. Every once in a while they're not. Red so, flag. And there was one contract I read that. Here, here's an example of what I'm talking about. It's crazy. It, it had said in the contract that if the talent was sent out for an audition and the talent brought a friend with them and the friend ended up booking the job, then the agent gets a percentage of the, of the gig and they, had, and they would hold the talent responsible for getting the, the fee. Wow. Exactly. That's what I said. <laughs> I was like, "What is this?" That that so, is that that is surprising. Uh, not not that I've been sent out on on that many things lately, since I'm focusing on audiobooks at this point. But uh, I, I I don't know what I would think if I saw that. <laughs> all of my that's why I got the phone call because that was the question that the the, the client had. I'm like, yeah. what is this? And I was like, I don't know. That's the first <laughs> time I've ever seen that one. That's great. What about uh, what about non-agent stuff? So you have voice talent who are going out, and in addition to working with agents, perhaps they're also going out and getting work on their own. What do you get contacted right. on for things where the voice talent comes to you and says, "I got no agent coming here, but you know these people. This is what they want me to do, and this is how much they want to pay me." And and for some reason, I don't feel comfortable about this. What what do you normally see there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and this is actually before. I see all kinds of crazy stuff in these contracts, all kinds of crazy stuff. And this is where I, I really need to stress to talent. If you don't understand what you're signing, please talk to someone more experienced, another voice talent, mm-hmm. talk to an attorney. Do not just sign on the, on the bottom, on the dotted line, because I see all kinds of stuff like 
um, you know, them, them not, not, not wanting to pay, <laughs> not paying way under, under market or mm-hmm. wanting to lock you up forever. You know, like this is a, a buyout in perpetuity. Mm. Um, we can use it for anything we want, whenever we want, wherever we want. You know, these are things that are actually in contracts that I see. Um, there'll, there'll be things like that'll be in, in, in other independent contractor agreements. Like you have to have a million dollars worth of liability insurance. Uh, I see that all the time. And I'm like, nope. Cross that out. <laughs> <laughs> that is not applicable to the, to the voice talent or yeah. on camera talent field. Cross it out. So like, but they, you know, they, they they will send a lot of times. These corporations have these independent contractor agreements that are drafted by attorneys that you know, like that they're supposed to be for like people that are building buildings or something like that. Right. The that attorney, give, the, the attorney who draws it up is not thinking that about voice talent. They're thinking of contractor. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So like the, all that stuff, most of those things have to be, they just have to be stricken because that, you know, it's, it's insane. Like <laughs> it doesn't apply at all. Right. So, and then there's, there's, um, the, one of the big issues that contracts should cover is who owns the copyright because copyright law is very clear. It's, um, copyright says if you're being hired as an independent contractor, to record uh, a sound recording for whatever it is, unless there's a work for hire agreement written and signed before the work begins, the the, the talent who's the independent contractor owns that copyright. Oh. So I see that I see this issue all the time. Like the, the, these companies don't understand that they need the talent to sign over the, the, the their copyright to them. So there's no writing. And so then there's a dispute that pops up and I'm like, well, if they didn't have you sign a work for hire, go after them on the, under copyright. If they're using it like they, like you think they shouldn't be using it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's something that um, has to be addressed. Like who owns the copyright and in the ACX contracts, um, they, they clearly say in there that uh, you giving up all your copyright copyrights and uh, to the whoever the rights holder is the you know if it's the publisher if it's the author right it clearly states in there and that's scary for me because i mean i guess acx has their own their own uh dispute resolution system but if it was outside of acx and you don't get paid then and i've seen this before too i mean this is one of the big one of the big areas I see where publishers do not pay the, the, uh, the royalty share. They're not paying them to the, to the talent or they're giving bogus statements or whatever. Um, and if you've given up your copyright in the contract, you really have no recourse. It, it's, it makes it very difficult, uh, to collect what you're owed. So interesting. So that, that kind of leads in, I was, I was wondering about audiobook specific legal things that have come up. So the, the fact that the narrator does not own the copyright is something that has come up and, and continues to come up that you see not being paid. That's what I see. Like the, I see a lot of publishers out there 
Well, not a lot again. <laughs> but some. In my, pers- in my perspective, it's a lot. Yeah. I, this is what I deal with every day. But, and any more than know, zero is a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, this is what I see all the bad stuff. So, like, that's why, in my mind, it's a lot. But it's really probably a small percentage. So you, see, I see, you see people not getting paid, but the problem there is that the narrator doesn't own the copyright, so there's not much recourse. Is that what you're saying? Right. right okay. Because what all happens right. is, you know, the, the, if, if they sign a royalty shared uh, deal with a publisher... And, you know, like a little company, these little mom pa companies, just like, just like a manager, like managers can pop up at any time. Who's to anybody can start a production, quote unquote production company. Sure. Yeah. And, and do audiobooks, you know, and call themselves a, a audiobook publisher. Right. So if you have an agreement with them, that's royalty share. And if they don't decide, if they say, well, we didn't have any sales this month, what are you going to do? Right, and if, and if you've signed over your, if you use the ACX contract, which a lot of these, a lot of these um, publishers use that as their form, mm-hmm. and they're not going through ACX, they're just doing it, you know, themselves. Oh, they've just um, copied the ACX kind of boilerplate form and use that for their contract. Right. All right. Right, and so you're giving up your copyright, and, but there's no guarantee. There's no way. There's no leverage to get paid if they do that. If they say, okay, well, you know. If you think that the book sold a whole ton and they're not giving you the accountings and not paying you properly, it's really hard. Really, it's very, very difficult to collect what you're owed. Um, so if if you do still own the copyright, how does that make it easier to get the information that you need to find out that you're not getting paid what you should get paid? Well, most of the time, again, what happens is the talent knows they know that the book's being sold because they can go online and they can, they can track it and they can see it. Okay. Um, so then they'll contact the publisher like, where's my money? Oh, they didn't sell anything. <laughs> right. So then it becomes a dispute as to what's due and what was sold. Um, if you own the copyright, it's, it, you can, you can, you don't even have to worry about any numbers uh, about what, you know, actual sales figures. If you own the copyright and it's registered, you can file an infringement claim in federal court and you get statutory damages. Okay. So it's up to 55 grand per, per infringement. So that's why the copyright act was created so that like, you don't have to get bogged down in those exact figures. If they're using the copyright, not compensating you, um, you own it. So you can go in and enforce it. If you don't own the copyright, you that that's gone. That that it that you can't go into federal court and ask for copyright protection because you don't own it. The, right. the publisher does. So it, it's a very big right, and you know, and that. I mean, I understand ACX has it in their contract, and that and it's fine because they they have their dispute resolution mechanism. So if you, there's an issue with not being paid, um, not being paid after the the um, the, the uh, author or the publisher um, okays, you know, the first seven minutes or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, then, then you can, you can go through ACX and they'll help. They'll, they'll just, they'll arbitrate that dispute. Yeah. Uh, but, but if that contract's being used and ACX is out of the equation, then there's lots of issues that can, that can pop up. That is... ro- especially royalty share deals. You know, if, if you're getting paid hourly by the finished hour, it's, it's, much safer. Right. So you're, you when, know. Once you're done, if you get paid once, that's pretty much it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's uh, that's really interesting information, though, about the copyright thing. I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening who would say, 
Well, yeah, ACX has a dispute resolution method. I don't think they're real happy with it, but uh, right. but it does exist. Well, that's the other issue. Like, you know, how good is that dispute resolution mechanism? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another. That's a whole other issue. But um, you know, the fact the fact that it's there at least that gives some protection to the talent. Sure. If yeah. If you're not going through ACX, that's gone. There's that's not there. Right. So. You have no safety net at all. Yeah. So what else do you see in, uh, that, that's audiobook specific? Anything come up that, that you see regularly or that you've at least had some experience with? Um, those are the big things as far as contract things. I, I do see um, like uh, use of um, pseudonyms. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, I think authors should, I mean, uh, narrators should set that up proper more properly more formally before they start actually using them how, how do you mean so, set it up set it up before like doing an audition uh no like i mean it, it a lot of people just pick a name and that's what they use and it's not really a it's not really a legal name it's well it's not a legal name it's just oh, a name that they made up so like they should have registered as a trade name or do it as an llc or something have some kind of more formal um way that it's used so that um, they don't get to trouble later on down the road, potential trouble. Got it. Um, so, I mean, that that's another issue that I see, you know, and then it's a way to protect your true identity. And that's what you're doing in the first place by using that. So if you don't have that, if you don't have that structure in place, it's easier to figure out who the real person is behind, you know, behind the curtain. So right. you could do it so that you could set it up in such a way where no one will ever find you legally. They'll never find you. So, so that's it. That's uh, that's good. The fact that you brought up LLC, cause that was a, a big question that I had as well, not just um, for the podcast, but personally as well. Um, I know a lot of voice talent starting out and especially audiobook talent starting out who don't form any kind of a company. They just narrate. And right. the stuff goes up on Audible. So talk to talk to me about the why it's important to set up. I assume that the the majority of the time you would recommend an LLC over an S corp when somebody is starting out. Maybe I'm wrong there. So correct me if necessary. But either way, why why do you recommend or do you recommend setting up a specific company for voice work? Uh, well, first of all. Um, someone that just starts to narrate and starts to receive money, they're automatically a sole proprietor. Okay. So even doing that, you have to, you have to go through, you should go through steps to, to kind of formalize that. Like you should apply for um, a tax ID number through the IRS so that you're, you don't have to give out your social security number all the time. Okay. Um, you could give out your tax ID number um, so that that protects a little bit from, identity theft. Um, so even that should be done at least a little bit formally. Okay. Um, the difference between LLC and S corp that really comes down to income. So I, there's, it's hard, you can't generalize on whether or not to do the LLC or the S corp, um, by if someone's starting out, because it really depends on all of their income, all of their assets, that would all that's all going to come into the equation as to whether or not how the you know what will have the maximum tax savings is going to be through the S Corp or the LLC. 
By all, you mean not just what's going to be earned through audiobook narration or other voiceover work. You're talking about if somebody is doing this part-time, uh, all income determines whether or not you should set up an S-Corp? Correct. Okay. Because that's a tax. That's a tax. Or say, for instance, um, someone's married and their spouse makes lots of money. Um, and then they're starting up a, a, a business uh, as an audiobook narrator it may be advantageous to set up an S-Corp and have the, the, uh, the spouse as being one of the members or one of the stockholders so that they save money family-wise, hmm. tax-wise. So that that's something that an accountant has to go through, okay. that analysis. As far as I'm concerned, as a lawyer, an LLC or an S-Corp, they do the same thing legally. They pr- protect your individual assets. So they protect you as an individual from having somebody suing you personally so that they don't take your house. They don't, um, you know, take, uh, go in your bank account, take your money or stocks or bonds or whatever. So um, why would, your- so somebody who's doing, th- this is really interesting to me, not because I'm afraid this is going to happen, but, um, just as a hypothetical, why is it that somebody who is a voice talent who goes in their closet you know, during the day or for a few hours at night, if they have a regular job and they're working on audiobooks, why should they be concerned about somebody coming after them and setting up an LLC so that somebody coming after them would not have access to their personal funds? How would that happen? Well, how about, how about this? What happens if you signed a big, huge contract for a, you know, a best-selling author and, um, Something happens and you can't uh, you can't perform on time. Do you want to get sued personally for that, or would you rather have your LLC that you could fold up <laughs> and okay. get sued for that? I mean that that's an easy example, sure, right yeah. there. I mean because you're going to be signing contracts, sign them in the name of the LLC, then the LLC is responsible, not not you personally. Right. Okay. So I mean, it only takes one crazy person to sue you, <laughs> and, it's, and it's too late. Once you get sued to do, go backwards and set up your LLC. I've, I've thought of, I've thought about that many times recently. It's like, it's, it's not just, because uh, people say, oh, well, you know, if something happens, this person doesn't have a case. To me, it's not really a matter of whether or not they have a case. It's a matter of whether or not they're crazy enough to sue, which means I have to go through the process, even, Correct. even if they don't have a case. Uh, and so I, I definitely hear that. Correct. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've seen some eccentric people <laughs> that are trying to set up production companies out there and I wouldn't, you know, I don't trust them necessarily. And, and uh, that that's one of the reasons why I set up my LLC for my production company. I didn't need to do that. I could have run it through my other businesses, but I, I did it separate because I don't want, I don't, I want that to have the exposure for filmmaking. I don't want any of my other stuff to have exposure for my filmmaking. Sure. So that's why I set it up. And, you know, that's the same logic for, I mean, for any business person, it's the same logic. I mean, if you're doing, if you're doing different businesses, uh, there's, cause there's many entrepreneurs out there that have multiple income streams. Every one of those, they, a lot of those people have separate LLCs or separate S corps or separate C corps or whatever they decide to do it. They have some kind of corporate protection for each of those income streams so that you know it doesn't cross over, it keeps everything separate. So that if it's that easier, if that one crazy person comes up, it's all individual. 
Right. Yeah. That one crazy person comes up and, and they're in, you know, the audiobook industry. You know, it's your audiobook LLC that's going to be sued, not your voiceover LLC, not your attorney, you know, not your other businesses. Right. So, and not yourself personally. And that's what you want to avoid. You want, you don't want to be personally responsible if you can avoid it. Yeah. For, for you know, for anything. Yeah, so. no, that, that makes sense. So setting up a business, setting up the corporation, uh, the legal entity, I should say, is uh, clearly important. What else should audiobook narrators um, consider in terms of legal possibilities before they actually move forward or as they continue to move forward? Well, the LLC or the, uh, and how they're going to be uh, taxed, that's something that, that's, that's a continual thing. So, you know, when you set up the LLC, you can be taxed as an S corporation or you can decide you want to create a C corporation at some point. You know, that 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 you just monitor as income grows with the accountant, um, how to save taxes, and, you know, set up retirement plans, things like this. All these kind of things, you, you know, your accountant um, can help with uh, for tax purposes so you don't have to keep paying all of your money, all of your money to the, to the government. It seems <laughs> Nobody like wants to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to pay as, as little taxes as you can. So, um, you know, there's, there's methods to do that. And that's something that, that's a constant thing. That's something that should be monitored all the time, you know, every quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's, that's the biggest, um, that goes along with your LLC. Um, and then on a day-to-day basis, just, Knowing the, the contracts that you're signing um, with the with the people that you're entering agreements with, you know, just make sure I, it's better that you have your own contract that you can give out that's that's uniform and that's it's the same. And so you don't have to you don't necessarily have to worry that every contract has different terms. And you know, what does that one say? What does that one say? Mm-hmm. You know, if you, that's why it's good to have your own so that you can just have it ready to, to have people uh, sign it or just offer it. Um, some production companies will say, no, we, we have our own agreements and, and that's fine. But, you know, you should at least have something ready so that you can try to keep things uniform. Because mm-hmm. um, that, that, that reduces your risk too. Because, um, you know, if there's different contracts that, that say, uh, you know, just for instance, one, if they all say, are all of them say different states that which law applies, you know, like one contract says California law applies. One contract says New York law applies. One contract says Florida law applies, you know, like trying to keep track of all that stuff mm-hmm. for the different jobs that could be hairy if things go, go wrong. So ideally I'd, I'd want the talent to have their home state that law apply and, you know, have the, if, if anything happens, have the producer have to come to their state to deal with issues mm-hmm. that protects, that protects the talent too. So, you know, the contracts that you sign on a daily basis, that that's, that's something that, uh, talent should, should be aware of at least. What about, um, you know, social media is so huge now and everybody has a public presence you ever have any uh, recommendations or have you ever seen anything where posting something publicly has ended up being a problem or would you advise against doing certain activities on social media or other public spaces for that reason? 
Yeah, that's another good point. Social media is another big area of uh, potential issues for, for voice talent. And another reason why voice talent would want to have an LLC. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I see, I've, I see issues um, where voice talent, um, they violate confidentiality agreements or, or non-disclosure agreements by putting information up on their, on their pages, um, you know, their social media sites to announce certain things. Um, they should definitely not put things up about the, the publisher's name, the, the book's name, any of that until they, until the publisher tells them it's okay mm-hmm. to, you know, to start promoting the book. Um, I've seen, I get these calls quite often where a, pub, uh, a production house or a publisher will, will call me and uh, say, oh, this uh, particular talent put some political stuff up on their Facebook page and I don't want to do business with them anymore. You know, to, what do I have to do legally so that uh, I can't use them anymore? Uh. <laughs> you know, and, and they don't even know. They just, you know, the, the talent doesn't even know. They just aren't getting hired anymore and they don't know why. But right. that's I know why. <laughs> because, <laughs> so I mean, putting political stuff up, anything that you put up on the on your social media sites can be used against you if a client doesn't just doesn't like it. Now I know so, that I, that, that's an interesting point. I know that uh, quite a few talent actually who have a business social media presence and they have a personal social media presence, and they specifically never post anything political on their business presence. But they are more than happy to post something political on their, uh, you know, private or personal um, presence. What what recommendation would you give there? Well, I mean, if it's going to be something that only your close friends and family, because that's your personal page, you're going to see. I mean, the chances of someone, a business person, seeing it are are reduced. That doesn't mean they're eliminated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's a good way to to protect. A little bit insulate a little bit from uh, uh, clients seeing your your posts by doing the business and personal thing. But I mean, if your personal page is seen by clients, then I, I you know I wouldn't. This is the advice that I give. It's it's the best way I can the best way I can uh, explain it so that talent understand the ramifications. I tell talent. I tell any client that calls up and asks me about this. Don't put anything up on um, your social media site that you wouldn't put up on a billboard on the side of the highway. <laughs> That's great. Because <laughs> everyone's going to see it. So, like, if you're if you're going to rag on someone on a billboard, you know, then go ahead, put it up on social media. It's the same. That's the it should be the standard. It's it's so public. That's great. So, if, if you want to say something bad about somebody, say it at a backyard barbecue and leave everything else kind of uh, kind of mild. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say anything bad about anybody because, I mean, especially social media, especially because there's... Because it know, just like takes it, one crazy person. <laughs> exactly. And plus, if you have like two or three thousand, if you have two or three thousand friends or connections or likes, that's like millions of people that see yeah. that, that, you know, you have connections to. So like there's just the, the, the odds of someone seeing something that you post, they're, 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 they increase tremendously so it's just like by saying something negative or or you know even even saying stuff like i got this great audition today and you know and it was for this like even that i wouldn't do because the the client can see that at some point right and you know that that's 
that they might not want that shared and then you're they're not going to use you so again in the future potentially and you don't want to you don't want to do things to shoot yourself in the foot you want to do things to get work not drive work away right absolutely so, yeah now that makes sense so uh anything else you can think of off the top of your head that uh that would be um so my audience here is audiobook professionals whether it's narrators or publishers or engineers or whatever Anything else you can think of that would be great advice to uh, keep everybody safe out there in a legal context? Uh, with the audiobook stuff, it's it's it you know if it's going through Audible and ACX, that's actually a, a, it's a good system to semi-protect talent. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things that's been kind of rampant that I've seen out there um, are, are usage issues. So you know, like you'll record um, a, a spot that they're uh, a video or a 15 second thing that's supposed to go on on the web. And all of a sudden it's on national TV. Yeah, I've been yeah. seeing this so much. Um, that's one thing that all voice talent have to be aware of and audiobook um, narrators too, because I mean, the book can be used beyond the scope of what they thought it was going to be used for. You know, uh, normally it just goes on Audible or ACX mm-hmm. and that's, and that's fine. Um, you know, but that's why that contract's really important because it's going to spell it. It spells out how it's going to be used, how long. You know, you got the seven years where you can recollect uh, your um, royalty share. Mm-hmm. But those are things that you know they have to be spelled out in advance. Um, so narrators that are doing things on their own. They have to follow that those same rules. You know, not going through the ACX or the Audible. Right. Right. Um, they you know if they're just signing deals with publishers they have those things have to be spelled out how, how it's going to be used where it's going to be distributed um how long you're going to be paying royalty shares if you're getting royalty share you know, that's the stuff that's important to audiobook narrators well that's great uh i'm sure that everybody listening will be happy to hear that that advice or maybe not happy but will at least take it to heart <laughs> i mean it's it's there's a lot of as you know, a lot of publishers that are popping up are little production houses that are popping up that are doing audiobook. Sure, on their own. yeah. And they're not necessarily going through ACX. So, like, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I know of several that have just started recently, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of them. I'm, I like the whole idea of mom and pop stores. You just have to make sure that a the mom and pop are trustworthy. And B, even if they are trustworthy, they know what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The, the knowing what they're doing part, that's the, that, that's even more important than trustworthy because, uh, I mean, they, they could still be trustworthy, but just don't know that they're being not trustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like that, it, that's why it's up to the, the narrator to understand completely what they're doing so that they protect themselves. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, Rob, this was great. I am so happy that you, uh, that you had a, a few minutes to come into the speakeasy here and, uh, share a drink with me. Uh, where can people find you on the web if they, uh, or not on the web or through email or whatever? Um, uh, I'm all over the place. So voiceoverlegal.com is my book. Um, Rob S C I G Rob Sig com is my, that's my law website. Um, Rob is my acting site. Keeping them separate. Keep them separate. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. That's great. Rob, thanks a lot for coming in. I'm, I'm really glad you had, uh, you had a few minutes and I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's great. All right. Well, that's it for tonight. Thanks once again to Rob Siglin-Paglia for stopping by and having a drink with me. I hope you all got as much out of his explanation of legal issues that can affect audiobook professionals as I did. Speaking of audiobook professionals, I have a request to make on behalf of one. Shannon Parks, who has narrated hundreds of audiobooks under the pseudonym Marguerite Gavin, is scheduled to have brain surgery in a couple of weeks for a condition called trigeminal neuralgia. This is a painful neurological condition that Shannon's been battling for several years. Hopefully the surgery will resolve the problem, but unfortunately she'll be unable to work during the recovery period, which will take several weeks at least. So if you can donate a few bucks to help manage medical bills and lack of income, her family would be really grateful. They've set up a donation page on Facebook. The URL has about 50 numbers in it, so I won't read it here, but I'll post it in the show notes. You can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. Until we see you here at the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! (laughs) 